Near the cemetery fence, under the dark boughs of a mature evergreen tree, sits a lone military headstone, unremarkable except for the large piece missing from a corner at the top. Pennies, ranging from newly minted to verdigris, litter the base of the stone to indicate that this dead man receives an inordinate number of visitors. If you check the headstone to see why, all you'll find are the veteran's name and that he served in Company F of the 16th Infantry. There are no dates on the stone. If you don't recognize his name, there's an informational bronze marker next to the grave placed there by a local charitable group. The Union soldier who's buried here, far from his native Pennsylvania, came west after the Civil War to prospect for gold. He died alone in Deer Creek, Colorado in 1907 and was laid to rest in the cemetery in Littleton, several miles down the South Platte from Denver. In those later years, he was known as a quiet, gentle man who kept to himself, but who was patient with children and animals. Rumor had it he was a vegetarian, which was unusual in that time and place. As a young man, as a prospector, he had failed in his search for gold and riches, but an incident in the winter of 1873-74 to 74 brought him a wealth of infamy and misery. This grave, you see, belongs to Alfred Packer. Popular history, though, has a much more colorful moniker for him. Alfred Packer is also known as the Colorado Cannibal. Welcome to Southwest Gothic. I'm your host, Adrienne Montoya. Pull up a chair to my virtual kitchen table, grab a bite to eat, and listen to this new episode titled, Getting to the Grizzly Details, The Strange Tale of Alfred Packer. Packer isn't quite as famous as the Donner Party, but his story is at least as compelling. To refresh your memory, the Donner Party was a wagon company of Oregon-bound settlers, several families and their guides, who spent the horrific winter of 1846-47 snowbound in the Sierra Nevada. Unsure of the trail, behind schedule, and low on supplies, they were already in trouble when winter turned exceptionally harsh and trapped them in the cold and the heavy snow. Party members began to die of exposure, and the survivors resorted to cannibalism to avoid starvation. The American public was transfixed by the gruesome choices the survivors had made, and some of the horrific possibilities of westward expansion were briefly highlighted. Decades later, white settlers from the eastern U.S. continued to move west. Among them was Alfred Packer. He'd enlisted twice in the Union Army during the Civil War, and had been discharged twice on account of his epileptic seizures. After the war, he came west, working as a carpenter, a shoemaker, a guide, and in various odd jobs. He rarely stayed in one place for long. It wasn't just his health that disrupted his life. It was his personality. Contemporaries remember Packer as easily offended, a braggart, a liar, frequently accused of theft, his social skills left more than a little to be desired. By the early 1870s, Packer was working in copper mines south of Salt Lake City. 
He worked irregularly since the lead used in the mining operations aggravated his epilepsy. He also spent more than a few nights in jail, since his occasional habits of drinking, fighting, and keeping pay-by-the-hour company didn't sit well with the conservative Mormon majority in the area. Between jail time and illness, Packer's income was meager. When news of another silver strike in central Colorado came in the fall of 1873, Packer didn't have the means to pay his passage in a crew of miners headed to Colorado. One group, though, was headed by a patient and generous man named Bob McGrew. Packer convinced McGrew that he knew the route through the mountains and could act as a guide in exchange for his passage. The group left Bingham Canyon on November 1st. With the notable exception of Bob McGrew, who had hired him, none of the men liked Packer. His high, loud voice was obnoxious, and his seizures unnerved the superstitious men. What made them most uneasy was his solicitous habit of asking each man how much money he was carrying, and whether he was taking any valuables with him over the mountain. As they wandered into Colorado Territory, progress slowed, with Packer frequently backpedaling on his uncertain directions. The other men grumbled that Packer had misrepresented his familiarity with the area. The protracted journey meant their provisions would run short, and soon. Worse, Packer had been taking more than his fair share all this time, greedily overeating and using up supplies. The group's animosity and blame were aimed squarely at Packer. Supplies were so thin that by mid-January 1874, the men considered eating their horses. Providence came in the form of an encounter with the Ute leader, Uray, who was wintering at a camp there in the San Juan Mountains. In spite of unpredictable relations between the U.S. and indigenous groups in the West, Uray was deliberate in maintaining a favorable relationship with U.S. officials and American settlers. He invited the pitiable crew to spend the remainder of the winter at the Ute encampment, where they could rest and recover before heading out to join the Silver Rush in the early spring. Some of the prospectors weren't content to rest. Day by day, they grew more anxious about the time they were losing getting to the new silver strikes. Though the youths refused to guide them in the dead of winter, some of the men spurned Uray's hospitality and sage advice to make their way out into the frozen wilderness, headed to the Indian agency at Los Pinos, near modern Gunnison. The first small group to leave was headed up by Packer's chief antagonist, a former sheriff of Bozeman, Montana, named Oliver Lotzenheiser. Packer attempted to join the group, but Lotzenheiser told Packer in no uncertain terms that he would end him if Packer tried to come after them. Packer took the hint. In the next few days, though, Packer somehow reasserted enough of his own legitimacy as a mountain guide to put together another small party. Besides Packer, the other men who left Uray's winter camp on February 9, 1874, were Shannon Wilson Bell, a young man from Michigan, James Humphrey of Philadelphia, Reddy Miller, a German butcher who carried a large knife as his favorite tool, George California Noon, a 16-year-old with arguably the best nickname in the group, and Israel Swan, also called Old Man Swan due to his decrepit condition and advanced age of 60 years. That's time and place for you, I guess. Packer had strained relationships with all the men of the company, but he and Shannon Bell riled each other almost as much as Packer and Lotzenheiser. 
All the same, they pushed their animosities below the surface of their rising greed and silver lust, and Packer and his five companions left the Ute camp to venture into waist-deep snow and higher drifts. We may never know the detailed truth of what transpired over the next nine and a half weeks, but on April 16th, Packer emerged from the wilderness alone and made his way to the Los Pinos Indian Agency. He claimed he'd been separated from his companions in a snowstorm and barely survived the harsh winter alone eating rose hips and a rabbit or two. The skeleton crew staffing Los Pinos that spring told Packer that, no, they hadn't seen his companions, but that they could send him on down the mountain into the town of Sawatch, where he was more likely to be able to reconnect. The Los Pinos men were puzzled that Packer appeared remarkably well-fed for a man who'd been in those winter conditions. He looked rough and worn, but hardly starved. Arriving in Sawatch, Packer went a little wild. Despite having gone into the wilderness penniless, he hit the general store for new clothes and supplies, then spent a conspicuous amount of money on booze and poker at Dolan's saloon. This raised some eyebrows. After all, it was spring and other members of the larger party, that is, the remainder of the 21 men who left Utah with Bob McGrew in November, had also made their way out of the wilderness and into various frontier towns, including Sawatch. People wanted to know the whereabouts of the other five men who'd left the Ute camp with Packer in February. He repeated his story about getting separated and lost in the snow and how he'd survived the winter foraging. His story raised suspicion all on its own, but other missteps really unspooled Packer's dark fabrications. He carried a prized skinning knife that belonged to the German butcher, Reddy Miller. He carried multiple billfolds containing a total of what seemed to be several hundred dollars. Remember that Packer left Utah flat broke. Add to that Packer's reputation as a thief. Rumors and accusations swirled, so Packer bought a horse and saddle and was ready to leave, but a fateful encounter held him back. General Charles Adams was the Indian agent at Los Pinos, and when he met Packer in Sawatch, he was intrigued by his story. Adams reasoned that if Packer had stayed alive all winter by foraging, then the five missing men might still be out there in need of assistance. Adams insisted that Packer accompany him back to Los Pinos to guide a search party. Packer gave excuses, adding suddenly that old Israel Swan had died just a few days out. He hadn't mentioned this before. Adams figured something else was going on, and not just because a growing number of other prospectors was ready to lynch Packer. Gently but firmly, Adams coaxed a confession out of Packer, who now freely admitted to cannibalizing his companions and to killing Shannon Bell in self-defense. Tearfully, fearing for his life, Packer told how Old Swan had died of exposure about ten days out. The others, starving, ate Swan's flesh for survival. Humphreys expired next and didn't go to waste. Another day, Packer returned from gathering firewood to find California Noon and Shannon Bell carving up Reddy Miller. They insisted they hadn't killed the German. Packer doubted it, but joined them in dining on Miller anyway. Within a few more days, Bell had killed Noon, leaving only Bell and Packer to share his corpse. Shortly thereafter, Bell had attacked Packer, and Packer had killed Bell in self-defense. 
Availing himself of the fresh meat, Packer then took several cuts to sustain him as he hiked out to Los Pinos over the space of two more weeks through the spring snow. This was Packer's first confession. He signed a written version at Adam's urging, but it hardly protected him. Most of the men from the original McGrew company were convinced that Packer had murdered his companions in order to steal from them and to dine on their flesh like a ghoul. They wanted his blood. Adams saw that evidence was needed to substantiate any narrative, so he sent a search party into the wilderness, including Packer. Packer proved an uncooperative guide, and the search party found nothing. They returned to Sawatch and held Packer in the jail. At the end of the summer, they found the bodies. An illustrator from Harper's Weekly was on hand to capture the scene in all its gruesome detail and share it with the world. The little clearing north of Lake San Cristobal was shaded, and even in high summer, snow remained to partially preserve the slaughter. Five bodies lay there in various states of decay. All had violent injuries. All were missing large sections of muscle that had been carved or hacked away from the legs or chest. One had been decapitated. They'd all been done in with a hatchet to the face or the back of the head, or both. The defensive wounds on their arms and hands were still visible after six months. The five bodies were grouped neatly in the clearing, covered with blankets. Nearby was a small one-man shelter, and it was clear that someone, Packer, had slept there for weeks next to the bodies of his slaughtered companions. The men investigating had seen enough and they hurried back to Sawatch to charge Packer with murder. But Packer was gone. Someone, still unknown, had helped him to escape from the crude log cabin that served as a jailhouse. Feeding and housing Packer was an unpopular expense in Sawatch, and despite the outrage, many were content to let him be someone else's problem. The five bodies were interred near where they'd been found, on a spot called Cannibal Plateau. You can visit the graves there today. The locals couldn't quite bury the horror of what had happened, but they could push it aside. Friends and family of some of Packer's victims raised money for bounties, and there were unsuccessful manhunts. Packer sightings throughout the western states and territories came to nothing. Nine years later, in March of 1883, near Fort Fetterman, Wyoming, a peddler had news for Deputy Sheriff Malcolm Campbell. The peddler was called Frenchy Cabasson. At that time, he sold dry goods on the route between Cheyenne and Fort Fetterman near modern Douglas, but he'd been working out west for decades. He'd been part of McGrew's original ill-fated company that left Utah for Colorado in November of 1873. Cabasson knew Alfred Packer. He knew the grating whine of Packer's voice, the sort of creepy questions he asked around the campfire, and all the unnerving and annoying personal habits that alienated Packer from his peers. When Cabasson heard that distinct high laugh coming from the next room of a trading post near the fort, he had to satisfy his curiosity. The laughing man, who appeared not to recognize old Frenchie, 
introduced himself as John Swartz, but Cabasson knew better. He hurried to Fort Fetterman and spoke with Deputy Campbell, who was plenty excited to be the one to bring in the fugitive man-eater, Alfred Packer, after nine long years. Campbell arrested him, but in the end, it was General Charles Adams who came to Cheyenne to confirm Packer's identity and complete the extradition to Colorado. Adams treated Packer with kindness, as always, but couldn't shield him from the mob waiting to greet him at Union Station in Denver. It was an ugly, pitiable scene of hateful jeers. One newspaper reported, The poor, godforsaken creature looked around, finding not one friendly face in all that crowd. Not one person said a friendly word to him. Even though he deserved to be shunned by mankind, it seemed sad. He was an outcast. In questioning, Packer elaborated his confession, clearly designating Shannon Bell as the perpetrator. Packer claimed that they'd been lost and out of food for several days when Bell came unhinged and acted crazy. Packer had gone to find high ground for a better view, hoping to forage something along the way, and returned to find Bell sitting at the fire, roasting a piece of Reddy Miller. Bell had killed the others with his hatchet, and they lay on the ground. When Bell saw Packer, he rushed at him with the hatchet, and Packer shot him in the belly. When Bell fell, Packer grabbed the hatchet and struck him in the head, finishing him. Forced by the snow to stay at the butchering site, Packer remained at the little camp and lived off the flesh of his murdered companions until he was able to hike out of the wilderness. He admitted in this confession to taking the other's money and weapons, though the amount he gave was less than what he must have had with him in Sawatch. He accounted for the discrepancies between this and his previous confession with his mental state at the time, still reeling from the events. Unsurprisingly, his confession was not well received by the public, who called him a murderer and worse and with inventive language. He hadn't been charged, but the public sentiment was unmistakable. Packer was a liar who had led the others into the wilderness with the intention of murdering them, devouring them, and stealing their money. There was an important consistency in his statements. He confessed to cannibalizing his dead companions and held that the only man he killed was Shannon Bell in self-defense. Packer used money from his mining days in hiding to secure a defense team of four attorneys. Before the trial, the prosecution and defense engaged in a flurry of motions to the court, exploiting technicalities and discrepancies in territorial and state murder statutes. Most of those motions were denied, and the case moved forward in the Hinsdale County Courthouse in Lake City, Colorado, with Judge Melville Jerry at the bench. There were days of testimony. Witnesses from the McGrew party testified not only to events, but to Packer's bad character, his untrustworthiness, and his greedy obsession with others' money. Witnesses from Sawatch added their observations. Those who had seen the bodies at Dead Man's Gulch described their condition in gruesome detail. General Adams, in turn, testified of Packer's disgust at his own cannibalism, his sincerity, and his desire to confess and set things right. When Packer himself took the stand three days into the trial, 
His convoluted and incoherent narrative did little to help his standing. His account of the events leading up to the massacre was more or less clear, even rehearsed, but other than that, he rambled for six hours. He was frequently sarcastic and rude with the prosecution, made threats against those who testified or given evidence against him, and contradicted himself. He lied about things as simple as his age and military service to no apparent advantage. His defense team had to work with what he gave them. While it should have been clear that all the evidence was circumstantial, pointing just as easily to Bell as the murderer as to Packer, the 12 men of the jury returned a guilty verdict. Judge Jerry was wholly convinced of Packer's guilt and struggled with his emotions while delivering a sentence with a speech better suited to the gallows than a courtroom. Here are some excerpts. Enforcing the verdict is a solemn, painful duty to perform. I would to God the cup might pass from me. Your unsuspecting victims were lost in the sleep of the weary, unconscious of danger from any quarter, and particularly from you, their trusted companion. You cruelly and brutally slew them all. No eye saw the bloody deed performed, nor ear save your own caught the groans of your dying victims. You then and there robbed the living of life, and then robbed the dead of the reward of honest toil, at least so say the jury. To other sickening details of your crime I will not refer. Silence is kindness. I know you have drunk the cup of bitterness to its very dregs. The sting of your conscience and the goadings of remorse have been an avenging nemesis which have followed your every turn in life. Then, before sentencing Packer to be hanged by the neck until dead, Judge Jerry delivered an odd and, it turns out, false prediction. Society cannot forgive you the crime you have committed, but it will forget. As the days come and go, the memory of you and your crime will fade from the minds of men. Think of that for a moment. It's been just shy of 136 years since Judge Jerry delivered the verdict and the sentence, and we're still talking about Alfred Packer, the Colorado cannibal. If our judgment of him has softened over time, it's hardly because he's faded from our minds. Part of this, of course, is because he never was hanged. There were strong and vocal reactions both supporting and criticizing the verdict and sentence. The evidence against Packer was wholly circumstantial. Packer was convicted largely on his bad attitude and sketchiness. Those unfortunate traits made him unpleasant, but not necessarily a murderer. To others, his character was proof of his guilt, and the sooner he was executed, the better. Amidst the furor, Packer's defense team found a legal loophole, an oversight in how murder charges were handled before and after Colorado's entry into the Union in 1876. When Packer's companions were killed in 1874, Colorado was still a territory, but the 1883 arrest, indictment, trial, and sentencing occurred seven years into statehood. Technically, the state had no jurisdiction over crimes committed in the territorial period on Ute tribal lands, but rather than a dismissal, the Colorado Supreme Court granted Packer an appeal. He was transferred back to the jail in Gunnison, 
where a steady stream of reporters and rubberneckers arrived to gawk at and sometimes speak with the infamous man-eater. Updates and speculations were regularly published in newspapers throughout the state. In August, Packer sat for a second trial, this time in Gunnison County, charged with five counts of manslaughter, since they couldn't charge him with murder. It was a simpler, swifter affair, with prosecution's witnesses adding nuanced but damning details. Perhaps due to his months behind bars, the agitated Packer's testimony was even less coherent than at his first trial. He yelled and muttered from the witness stand, verbally attacking those present in the court. Unsurprisingly, the second jury delivered a guilty verdict and a prison sentence. Packer was immediately sent to the state prison in Canyon City on the Upper Arkansas River to serve out his 40 years, a maximum sentence of eight years for each of five counts of voluntary manslaughter. Prison didn't remove Packer from the spotlight either. He received a number of curious and concerned visitors, mostly government officials and journalists. His continued epileptic fits meant he couldn't perform hard labor so the prison kept him busy with lighter tasks, as well as allowing him time to make wood carvings. He even made a large Victorian dollhouse for the warden's daughter. He sold or sometimes gifted his works, and he had a fair income from them. Whereas in his life on the outside, he'd had a reputation as greedy and stingy, in prison he was known to freely share his resources with other inmates, especially to pay for legal expenses. News items involving Packer were still published, if with less regularity. Minor celebrity is still celebrity. As the years went by, attorneys of the Colorado Bar still spoke of Packer's situation as a miscarriage of justice, and little by little the cause of his release gained ground. Of course, many in the general public still saw Packer as a vengeful, cannibalistic boogeyman who belonged behind bars. Prison life seems to have had a calming effect on Packer. He was generally less agitated, and his fits were less frequent, though still severe. His health suffered, which isn't exactly a surprise for a late 19th century inmate. With the help of his friend Dwayne Hatch, whom he had befriended during his John Swartz days in Wyoming, Packer petitioned for release on the grounds of personal reformation, on grounds of health, age, on grounds of suitability to re-enter society. But time and again, he was denied. For years, Hatch helped Packer with contacts among attorneys, parole board members, and prison officials. But nothing came of it. Then, in May of 1899, 16 years into his 40-year sentence, Packer received a new visitor, someone who wasn't initially there to see him. A firebrand reporter from the Denver Evening Post had come to investigate prison conditions, and of course she took advantage of the opportunity to speak with one of the prison's most infamous residents. Lionel Ross Campbell, better known by her pen name Polly Pry, was a wealthy, educated woman from the South, or maybe the East, who styled herself as an investigative journalist in the new, civic-minded tradition of Nellie Bly though Polly Pry was more sensational in her work than Ms. Bly. Pry's initial impression of Packer was dismal. She used phrases like, absolutely repellent, perfectly lacking in magnetism, 
listless, cynical, hard, and bitter. So, yeah, old Alfred still had his charm. Packer himself found pry repellent when she introduced herself as a reporter. By this time in his life, he was ill-disposed to reporters, feeling that he'd been exploited and his case for parole much damaged by their words. All the same, he told Miss Pry his story, and she believed him. She believed him so thoroughly that she took up her pen to popularize his cause, rebranding it as a human and civil rights issue, which it was. She was met with some resistance, of course. There were still those who believed Packer was a thieving, bloodthirsty cannibal who longed to gnaw on the public as they slept in their beds. It took several attempts, but with the combined efforts of Hatch, Pry, sympathetic members of the bar and on the bench, the backing of several civic groups, and some odd strokes of fortune, Packer was finally freed. Outgoing Governor Charles Thomas granted Packer parole on January 7, 1901. There's a good deal more to the story, but let's keep the focus on Packer. Nearly 27 years had passed since that fateful storm in February 1874 had forced him to kill at least one of his companions and subsist on the flesh of all five. Packer lived out his last years in small settlements southwest of Denver, quietly tending his vegetable garden, his chickens and rabbits. He lived alone, but he was friendly with his neighbors, if reserved. At the time of his death in April 1907, his neighbors noted that he had always insisted on his innocence and how important it had been to him to die with a good reputation. From the warm, heartfelt words they had for him, it seems they did believe him. So, Judge Jerry was wrong. Alfred Packer and his alleged crimes were not, in fact, forgotten. Coloradans remember Packer quite well, and not just around the campfire. At the University of Colorado in Boulder, a restaurant in the Student Union cafeteria is named the Alfred Packer Grill, and a bronze bust of Packer graces the larger dining room. There's some fine dark humor there, especially given the large population of vegetarians and vegans that attend CU. I did my grad work in Boulder, and I always cringed a little when new out-of-state or foreign students asked about the grill's name. Was Packer a famous Colorado statesman? An early educator or proponent of the university? No, I'd explain. He's just our most famous and iconic cannibal. Pass the pepper, please. In retrospect, I really should have been photographing their faces when I got to the punchline. Trey Parker and Matt Stone of South Park fame are also CU Boulder alumni. Whether or not they were inspired by the Packer bust in the cafeteria, while they were at CU, they wrote and produced a musical comedy about Alfred Packer called Cannibal the Musical. Yes, there are exclamation points in there. It's just as irreverent and cheeky as you'd expect and imagines a romance between Packer the prisoner and Polly Pry the sympathetic reporter. A film version from 1993 has a faithful cult following, and the show continues to be popular as a live stage production. In Lake City, Colorado, where Packer stood trial for murder, they hold an annual festival called Alfred Packer Days. There's a 5K run, classes and contests and mountain man skills, and a mystery meat cook-off 
the t-shirt and poster designs consistently feature cannibalism-themed puns. Back when the TV game show The Weakest Link was popular, I recall seeing that the Alfred Packerday's t-shirt for one of those years had the words, You are the tastiest link, with a picture of Packer holding a string of sausages. That might be Colorado's weirdest local history fest, but for that honor, it barely beats out competition like Frozen Dead Guy Days in Netherland and the Manitou Springs Coffin Races. Don't worry, we'll get to those in later episodes. Some memorials of Packer are even stranger. For example, one dark September night in 1940, a theatrical correspondence course clergyman named Frank Rice and half a dozen of his friends brought a goat to Packer's grave in the middle of the night. The goat, apparently, was named Angelica. After donning black robes, Rice and company performed a ceremony to transfer Packer's sins to the goat and left her to wander the cemetery. Perhaps like the sin-bearing scapegoat described in Leviticus, it's unclear. It's also unclear whether this was a solemn occasion or a bad joke. At any rate, legend says that Angelica's ghost haunts the graveyard, and it is the restless spirit of the goat that is specified, not Packer's. The ambiguity of Packer's story sticks with us, too. He ate his companions, yes, that's sufficiently dreadful. But did he kill them? In search of answers, in 1999, an archaeological crew excavated the five graves at Cannibal Plateau and analyzed the remains. The men had all died violently. Blunt force trauma, defensive wounds against a hacking weapon, skulls cleaved and bashed by a hatchet. The bones showed marks from butchering. The body identified as Shannon Bell's was ravaged in ways inconsistent with Packer's descriptions. But that's still circumstantial, not proof. Fascinating as they are, the forensic data add little to the case for or against Packer, only making the violence more specific. Violence engenders trauma, which leads us roundabout to that alleged vegetarianism. I'm intrigued by this. Now, there's no evidence, no letter or interview with Packer where he says, I'm a vegetarian, I swore off meat after that time I had to eat my co-workers to survive, and I just don't care for the stuff much anymore. But did any journalist ever bring up that question? Imagine, for a moment, how biting a piece off another human being, I don't think it matters if they're friend or foe, would put meat, especially raw meat, into a horrible new context. If you had to do it repeatedly, then that recontextualization is probably permanent. To my mind, if Packer were a vegetarian, it would demonstrate how sensitive and scarred he might have been, how unlike the bloodthirsty ghoul some imagined. I wonder how Packer saw himself, especially after that fatal winter of 1873-74. to 74. Did he see himself as a monster? Did he frighten himself? As I read and researched, something occurred to me. Packer was from Pennsylvania and was living in Minnesota when he first enlisted in the Union Army. And I ask myself, 
Had he heard the Algonquin legend of the Wendigo, that feral monster born of hard winter cannibalism? Packer was alone with the bodies, eating from them a slice at a time, for weeks. Did the icy wind howling off Lake San Cristobal call his name? Was the Wendigo something he feared? Did he fear becoming the monster? This is pure 100% speculation on my part. But the geography raises the question for me, and I do wonder. So who was Packer, and who wasn't he? He was lonely and awkward and wasn't great at relating to others. Sympathetic leaders like Bob McGrew, General Adams, and even Polly Pry saw how Packer's peers treated him, and they reached out to him with pity and compassion. Had Packer ever fit in? I imagine he was bullied as an epileptic child and that isolation exacerbated any innate awkwardness. Likely, he wanted to belong, but he couldn't manage it. He became defensive, growing into the hot-headed, blustering jackass the historical record shows us at times. Packer made people uncomfortable, but he wasn't a butcher from a Grimm's fairy tale who killed naughty neighborhood children for fun, profit, or to satisfy unnatural appetites. What he did, he did out of necessity and on one harrowing occasion. In a way, that makes it worse. His tale is scarier, more tragic, because he's a bit relatable. We fear becoming him. He was a normal, if awkward, guy who took a gamble against the Sawatch Mountains in a rough winter, and he lost. He didn't die, but he still lost. History also gives us a portrait of Packer as a nice guy later in life. That's believable. I know people who've emerged from prison as better, more determined versions of themselves. How much had Packer changed, and by what means? Was it the wilderness experience that changed him? Was it religion? Was it those years in prison waiting for clemency or a pardon, staring down the prospect of dying of old age in prison? Is that more or less terrifying than the nightmare of having to turn to cannibalism? It always comes back to cannibalism with Alfred Packer. Of course it does. It's juicy, it's titillating, and with the passage of over a century, it can also be funny. But I've been chewing on this story for a while. Strip away the anthropophagy and this cabin in the woods light horror story becomes downright terrifying. What's scarier than that, you ask? Alfred Packer was sentenced to hang convicted of a capital crime on circumstantial evidence. The testimony against him was, overwhelmingly, a litany of his creepiness, rudeness, and reputation for petty theft. Was Alfred Packer a creep and a weirdo? It sure looks like it. Total swipe left. Is that a good reason to execute somebody? Hardly. There are some silver linings here. Alfred wasn't lynched. His defense team got him a new trial that didn't result in a death sentence, though it did result in prison time for crimes he may not have committed, on evidence that didn't begin to pass the beyond a reasonable doubt test. He had advocates who helped get him out of prison. As Wild West justice goes, this was progress. He wasn't gunned down in the streets, but he didn't exactly get a fair trial either. American justice evolves, I know, and that's usually something to celebrate. It's also not something to take for granted. 
That terror I'm talking about has an almost distinctly 20th century feel to it, more Kafka-esque, reminiscent of Camus' darker musings on the futility of seeking justice. Miscarriage of justice is a timeless theme, but the existentialist nailed it in a haunting way. It's a different sort of shiver, a different loss of control than being slaughtered and eaten, but it's still terrifying. That's the strange tale of Alfred Packer, the Colorado cannibal, soldier of the Grand Army of the Republic, prospector, prisoner, friend to children, and small animals. Despite the availability of genuine historical evidence and documents, Packer's still a local tall tale, a boogeyman, a bit of a joke, and a gruesome celebrity. He fascinates us, and he freaks us out. And when that die-hard outdoorsy friend suggests winter camping, we crack those jokes about the Donner Party and Alfred Packer because they're funny, yes, but mostly because they make light of our fears of what could happen deep in the mountains, trapped in the snow. You've been listening to Southwest Gothic. I'm your host, Adrienne Montoya. If you'd like to learn more about Alfred Packer, Check the show notes at southwestgothic.com under the Notes and Credits page. I've included a little info on Packer Days in Lake City, as well as the highly entertaining, highly apocryphal sentencing statements that Judge Jerry never really gave. I put them in the show notes because they don't really fit the tone of the story. And there's always other info and episodes at southwestgothic.com. I invite you to follow the show's Facebook page, Southwest Gothic Podcast, or southwest.gothic on Instagram. I'll be back in a couple of weeks to give you the shivers all over again. Thanks for listening.